This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 28, recorded on June 17th, 2020. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdallah, and I'm here with Dr. Fawner, Dr. Keller, and Dr. Cardi. We have uh, expanded this week. Yes, Maybe we have. Every single week, we're just going to keep adding and adding and adding until there's like 12 people recording one podcast. Right. But you're only allowed 10 people in a room. Well, we're still under that, so I'm not too concerned. And we are practicing social distancing. Yes, yeah. we are. We have to keep buying mics. I have one. Yeah, you do. We're borrowing it today. I guess. Oh, is that, for, oh that's the one. Yeah, okay, thanks very for nice. letting us borrow very your mic. Very nice. I didn't know. Thanks for the mic. And uh, Dr. Cardi, can we call you Nancy? Of course. Perfect. How are you today? I'm great. How's your summer going? Oh, it's wonderful. Loving the warm weather, loving the sunshine, puts me in better spirits. Like, like you need better spirits. You're already in the greatest <laughs> spirits of any person I've ever met. Winters are harsh in Erie, so summer is much better, <laughs> spring and right. summer. That's I was going right. to say it's um, either Nancy or a grad student that I worked with at Duquesne where I could have the worst day. And I walk by and it's like, hey, how's it going? And I'm like, you know what? Today's not that bad. Okay. <laughs> like, I feel a little bit better now. How long did you work with this other person? Uh, we weren't in the same lab. Yeah. Uh, maybe three, four years. Okay. Yeah. Give it like 10. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you saying, Chris? I'm saying, every, saying everybody. <laughs> Everybody has a breaking point. Everybody has a That's breaking good. point. You're saying too much happy-go-lucky. <laughs> too much. Ah, oh, the sunshine. Here, uh, you know, I have I have notes like, Chris, happy 2020, Nancy. So I get little yeah. notes every now and then that those are cool. Yes, yeah. yeah, it makes it makes the day go better. Press you up. All right. So thanks for joining our episode today, Nancy. We're gonna talk to you throughout uh, about your research. Sounds great. All right, so today's birthday, who do we have? We have Francois Jacob, or Jacob, or how would you pronounce that? Francois Jacob, probably, or Jacob. There you go. If I need help with the French pronunciation, I'm probably going to turn to Dr. A here. But um, Francois was born on June 17th, 1920, and he died on April 19th, 2013. And Francois was a French biologist who, along with André Lewolf and Jacques Monod, Again, apologize if I butcher that. Um, Francois was awarded the 1965 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for discoveries concerning molecular genetics. And this showed how the production of proteins from DNA can be regulated. Um, Specifically, Jacob and his team found that a regulator called the R-gene produces a repressor substance that can actually prevent an operator or O-gene from providing mRNA, thus blocking the protein production. So uh, think of uh, our listeners out there, think of like gene regulation, right? If you learned about like operons and uh, anything related to repressors, operators, promoters, et cetera, that's uh, sort of this kind of stuff. We're, yeah. we're really talking about bacteria here too, not, yeah, not bacteria. humans. Just, just yeah. you know, yeah. Absolutely. in case they're non-science listeners. No, no, that's good clarification. So, uh, you know, incidentally, Nancy, uh, Francois Jacob was born in Nancy in France. 
uh, spelled the same way you spell your name. And, you know, I found this interesting about him. So he attended medical school. Uh, then the Germans kind of, you know, took over France or, you know, the France capitulated to the Germans. <laughs> and then the he actually had to go to London, join the French resistance from there, and then came back and finished his work uh, when France was freed. Interesting. So he... Um, more yeah. interesting than the science. Absolutely. So he submitted his doctoral thesis in Paris in 1947, mm. right? And due to injuries that he sustained in the war, he was unable to practice surgery, which was very unfortunate. So he uh, worked in various fields before turning to biology, obtained his science degree in 1951, and then a doctorate in science in 1954. And his thesis focused on lysogenic bacteria and the provirus idea or concept. And uh, he got his PhD from the Sorbonne in in Paris, which is sort of French France's uh, Harvard. Mm -hmm. Cool. And then in 1970, he published a book uh, which is entitled "Le Logique du Vivant, une histoire de la réalité." And Dr. That is A, impressive, Dr. Fonner. According yes. to Dr. A, Dr. Cardi, <laughs> I practiced that two times, and Dr. He, he A did, and it uh, it was wow, very well done. You know, I, I wouldn't even touch it. You know, uh, we're gonna have an outtakes episode in the next year or two, <laughs> probably. And on that outtakes episode, you'll hear Dr. A. Oh, laughing. He'll, he'll correct you later on. He'll probably just insert that little segment after we're done here. Well, no, remember him we correcting have, you. We have the bleeps for the swear words, so mm -hmm. when I say that, it'll just be beep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well I. I was impressed with it. Thank Let's put you. That I way. appreciate it. <laughs> so for those day. of you that want to pick up a copy of the book, it is translated to English. It's called The Logic of Life, A History of Heredity. And it effectively traces the study of living beings uh, starting in the 16th century uh, and leading up to molecular biology. Fascinating. Very good. Okay. That is it for our scientist of the day. So what are we going to talk about today? We have first up our COVID-19 updates, what has happened since our last podcast in terms of numbers of cases, deaths, and updates on various other aspects of the coronavirus. And then we are going to interview Dr. Cardi on her research and spotlight what she does along with Dr. Keller and discuss the cool things about her research and why students should be interested. All right, let's do it. So where are we in number of worldwide cases for COVID-19? 8.3 million. That's a lot. It's a lot. Way more than the first outbreak, yeah? SARS outbreak in 2000. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, well, no, remember, wait. that SARS outbreak was really contained. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was contained to, to China, Hong Kong, and Toronto. Any ideas why that did not spread worldwide? I don't know. That's why, you know, a few episodes ago in about six months, seems when, when what, the, six months you know, into when, the outbreak, now. right? When we first yeah. the first episode, we were talking about it. That's why I figured we wouldn't see such a big deal here. Yeah, it's because of the first SARS and the MERS. And if history has anything to say, this would have followed the same trend. And it didn't. Mm -hmm. um, it, it must be more infectious. Must be. I mean, the recent journal clubs that we've been going to all uh, you and I, at least, uh, Say that uh, the the viruses, the, the original SARS and this SARS-CoV-2 use the same receptor on cells to get in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why why this one's more infectious or not? I think it probably has to do with the fact that people were leaving China in droves that were infected. Yeah. 
before we were alerted to the fact that it exists. Yeah. Might be, be a longer of incubation too. time. Time mm, of year. Could be time sure. of year too, right? It happened around the Chinese New Year's, which they were traveling. Yes. Could be. Who knows? Who knows? All right. So 8.3 million deaths or cases worldwide and deaths. We are close to 450,000. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the U.S. has the lion's share of that. What? Approximately 2.2 million cases and 119,000 deaths. Yeah. Now, do you think that's because we're reporting it and testing for it? Or do you think that that's uh, our testing per million? So if you look, it's not so at, high, uh, but not, not as high as other nations, though. But it, it is up there. It's in the top 10 in terms of testing per million of population. Uh, we're testing, uh, if I remember the number correctly, something like 70,000 per million or something like that, which is high. I mean, that's a lot. But I'm thinking some of the countries that don't have as much resources, if they are under testing just yeah. because they, they don't have a choice. They can, and, yeah. Well, the, the, the reason I, I bring that up, so Brazil is closing in on a million cases, right? They're okay. at 950,000 or so. Their test rate per million is about 4,000 per million. Wow. One-tenth or so what so, like, the average is. I wonder, more. what they're, are they diagnosing based on? Clinical symptoms? Manifestations, or? maybe? Right? No, I, th I think they're still doing PCR, but they're oh, just okay. not doing enough. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So their one million case is probably three, four times as much. So it's that's actually underrepresented. Oh yeah, huge yeah. in Brazil, hugely. That's where that's that's what it meant. That's yeah. where we're going. Yeah. So the, so we think collectively, there's probably a lot more cases Tom out Moore. there, uh, severe in, cases in every and country. deaths. Yes, in every country and deaths probably that's that aren't being reported. Board, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So and to it's a big deal. Put, well, and to put this in perspective, know. somebody mentioned this on a radio show I was listening to. That it's not uh, Howard Stern, is it? Uh, no, not this <laughs> statistic. Although I do listen to Howard Stern for a laugh and to take a break from reality. Religiously listens to Howard Stern. every morning. Okay. That's well, anyway, religious. that would be religious. Uh -huh. I would say nice. So, um, what was the death rate in World War One for the U.S.? Was it about fifty, fifty-five thousand? So we've nearly doubled the was World it? I War One. I, I thought millions died in World War One. I. I thought U.S. U.S. deaths. I mean, I could be wrong, but I really thought we were at the about PR, you know. That's okay. We have to check each other, and clarifications are key during this podcast. We we do do fact checking on this. No, show. I'd rather be wrong and proven to be wrong. <laughs> no, you are correct. Fifty three thousand four hundred. Can no. we say that? What was that? Wow. Correct. Fifty three thousand. <laughs> hold on, hold on. I'm you need ready. to repeat that multiple times. Just oh, it's, being, it's, it's on a podcast. It's being and, and I'm writing. <laughs> I'm writing it down. I think I'm going to run later today and just have that on a 15 second loop. I'm See? Like, I exactly. might be able to run 10, 13 miles on the adrenaline alone. Um, but just to put that in perspective of the number of deaths that are, that we're approximately at right now, but that will continue to rise until more effective treatments and a vaccine is eventually produced. And, you know, the stay-at-home orders as well, right? Um, the U.S. stay-at-home orders have been largely lifted in most states. Um, what are, just off the top of our head, what states have not lifted um, stay-at-home order. Is there any state that is still completely I don't think so. locked down? No, I don't think so. No, no yeah. To I mean, some degree, right? Yeah. I mean, some counties, we are. Yeah, mm -hmm. some counties are different, but most states have lifted. So part of the, and what we're going to just briefly talk about is the fact that since these stay-at-home orders have been lifted, 
in the past few weeks, there are certain states that are beginning to suffer surges or spikes in coronavirus cases, right? And the two that are being more report, or I'm sorry, the three that are being most reported on, um, Florida, Texas, and Arizona. And I guess this is a point of discussion for us. Um, why do we think there are these hugely significant spikes in cases once the stay-at-home order was rescinded? And especially in the last two to three weeks, I mean, we had Florida with a, what was it, nearly 3,000, mm-hmm. 2,700 new cases were reported as of just yesterday. They're, and that set a new daily record. 1,000 a day. It's insane. Yeah. So, I mean, why do we think that is? Is it due to the fact that as soon as these stay-at-home orders are lifted, everybody thinks, oh, back to normal, masks off, go crowd into bars. Exactly. Uh, That's pretty much it. I'd say that's 75% of it. Yeah. I think people are tired, too. I mean, if if you live in an area where you're not seeing – if you're not sick and the people right next to you aren't sick Mm – you know, sooner or later you say, well, maybe this, this, I shouldn't follow these guidelines. And so you're seeing a lot of people not wearing the masks and, and not practicing social distancing yeah. once they lifted the order. I mean, it's okay to go outside, but, you know, you can still stay away from people and, yeah. and be safe. There's an interesting article on the, in the New York Times talking about how the U.S. is failing the marshmallow test. So, you know, the marshmallow test, it's a sort of a famous psych experiment with children Mm -hmm. where they sit them down and they'll say to a child, here's a marshmallow and they'll put it in front of them on the table. Mm -hmm. And they'll say to them, if you do not eat this marshmallow for the next five minutes, in five minutes, we'll give you a second marshmallow and you can eat two marshmallows. And most kids will not wait for that second marshmallow, Mm -hmm. right? They will eat that marshmallow. They will not wait for it. And, uh, uh, this article was saying sort of the U.S. is failing the marshmallow test, right? We're telling the people, hey, you can start going out, but if you're careful, you know, we won't have to go back to stay at home orders. But yeah. it looks like we're not taking that seriously. Well, it's I think what Dr. Keller said was a matter of patience, um, looking around and I don't want to insult anybody, but maybe being limited in terms of truly understanding, oh, well, anybody I've run into in the last few days, they're not sick. So obviously things are getting better, which means I can go whatever place X and take off my mask and be within six feet of somebody. And I mean, the people responsible for this that should be punished are those institutions and bars that are allowing people to just swarm in there. I mean, what are the what are the consequences for them? That's what I'd like to know. Well, I mean, uh, New York governor uh, had apparently their office had received 25,000 complaints last week of people sort of not social distancing at restaurants and bars. And uh, he threatened uh, fines and he also threatened bars with taking their liquor license mm. if they do not start complying. And that'll make them comply. That, that yeah, will that's, get that's people huge. to comply. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just to take us back a second, because uh, we want to give accurate numbers. We were talking about number of tests per million population. U.S. is doing 78,000. We had said 70,000 or I had said 70,000. And um, it was India that was at 4,000 per million. Mm, okay, Brazil is at 8,000 per million. They're still under, severely yeah. under. Mm-hmm. Russia is doing 110,000 per million. Oh, They're wow. testing slightly more than we are. And... Uh, yeah. Is that the highest of any country reported? The highest of any country. Uh, if you give me a second, what is this? We're doing tests per million. 
what is this? 400,000 per million Monaco, which is really not. I mean, they're that's even, a principality. They don't like, have a million. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, uh, the So on the list of... In descending order is Monaco, Gibraltar, which I wouldn't count that, Cayman Islands, then UAE and Bahrain. So UAE, United Arab Emirates in Bahrain are testing about 250,000 per million. So almost uh, three and a half times our rate. It surprises me that China is not number one. Uh, China has stopped pretending that there's a problem about a couple months ago. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> their numbers, the number of Corona cases are still hovering around 83,000. That has not changed. <laughs> there's just a big question mark over <laughs> China's reporting at this point. Uh, let me see where they are on the list. Yeah, they are at 83,000 uh, cases and 4,600 deaths. And that has been like that since about February or so. So. Oh. So they just don't report anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Got we kind of stopped paying attention to that in China. <laughs> Safest place to be. <laughs> That's right. So um, we have, not to kind of, just as a segue here, yeah. um, what's going on with vaccine developments? Um, what are some of the companies and different candidates for vaccines? There's quite a number. Yeah. I mean, we again, we were reading articles about one of the vaccines that they were working on with the... Uh, with the S protein, which is basically the the protein that the virus uses to find and bind to its cell, but so there's it's a the lot spike here. protein on the, the spike outside protein, of it, yeah. yeah. Um, and it looks like that's being used for a lot of these. But Johnson and Johnson, AstraZeneca, uh, GlaxoSmithKline are all on this list. Right? Um, quite a number of of different uh, Pfizer's up there. Missed that one. Bunch of companies, and it looks like they're all pretty much collaborating as well, yeah. um, you know, to move this so fast. But um, most of these, all of these are in either phase one or phase two still. Uh, phase one, again, I think we talked about it last time, but phase yeah. one is is a bunch of healthy people, like a small group of healthy people, uh, pretty much undergrads that need money. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, phase two testing is where they move into people that actually have the disease mm -hmm. and test. Uh, the vaccine, uh, or usually it's a drug. So in this case, oh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, for coronavirus, for coronavirus, at risk. People? Yeah. I, uh, well, that's 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 one thing that I added in in our notes to discuss. So a lot of the countries that usually are the market for testing in Southeast Asia and Africa uh, this time around are saying, you know what? Um, no thanks. Yeah, piss yeah, yeah. off. We're not going to do it. Right. We do not want to be the labs of Europe and the U.S. So. Uh, the usual market for testing is actually putting up some resistance for this. Uh, but in this case, um, phase phase two uh, for some of the ones that we had looked at, I, I mean, I don't think they're testing them in infected people yet. Right. So well, why would they? Right? I mean, if you're already yeah. infected, what's yeah. the vaccine going to do? Mm -hmm. So did all of these because I have not read these articles for these particular vaccine trials right here. Did they all bypass animal testing or did they finish the animal testing? So. Uh, a lot of them are still in phase one, so they would still be in the lab. Okay. And only two are in phase two. Moderna and AstraZeneca are in phase two. Okay. And uh, Moderna is uh, doing an mRNA vaccine. The advantages of mRNA vaccine technology is that uh, it is faster to develop as a vaccine. Lower doses are needed and you can produce things in large quantities really quickly. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, Moderna, I think, is 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 quite far ahead in in their um, 
in their development. They're so, I think they're so confident of their data that they've started looking at the supply end of things. They've started working with companies to deliver the vaccine to places because they think that they're going to have a successful one. Now, Moderna, because they came under controversy about a month, month and a half ago because some of their data sets were not being what reported or or fully released, uh, fully yeah. released some holes maybe in their data have those data sets seen the light of day or what's been the update uh, there not with moderna that i know of okay uh, they got criticized that their phase one study only contained eight samples eight an n of eight which is which is low very low for that's, uh, a phase that's one a, trial. an n that you would base not being vaccinated uh-huh. on uh-huh. exactly yeah but they've moved on to phase two and uh presumably they're in the couple hundreds now this is a collaboration with the niaid national institute of uh what allergy and infectious diseases right yeah mm-hmm. and that's going to push it forward right there that will yeah that will it's uh, one of the four or five vaccines that the federal government is also fast tracking you know what i Do like you- to I'm sorry. You know, go ahead. You know, like to see on here is the the country of origin for a lot of these. It, it, this is not something that you usually see too much, but it looks like uh, it's a multinational uh, endeavor with some of these. Yeah, yeah, mostly right? Western countries. Yeah, UK. Well, US, sure, Germany, but France. well, you got a China, US there with. Uh, I don't know that company. Uh, Sinovac is a Chinese company. Dynavax mm-hmm. is a U.S. company. I know that company. Yeah. That's probably why. And, so, um, but it's good to see different countries getting involved. This is, after all, a pandemic. Mm-hmm. One country is not going to – we're not going to be able to build a, a wall and keep it out. No, you're exactly right. Uh, especially money-wise. Right? One country is not going to be able to afford it. No One way. company is not going to be able to afford it, right? Yeah. Do we think some of this fast tracking is maybe not the best strategy? We're going to talk about this a bit later with dexamethasone, but – what do we think about the maybe rush job here in terms of accelerating so quickly to phase two? Well, the one thing about these uh, to note is in all of these companies, none of this has been peer reviewed, mm-hmm. right? But uh, pharmaceutical companies tend not to publish stuff, right? They'll go to patents yes. and then they'll go to production. Uh, so I don't think we'll see a lot of papers come out of the pharmaceutical industry on this stuff. But uh, the only reason I think that uh, because the Europeans are involved and the European Union is such much more stringent in terms of their health and safety, I think, for a lot of products, I have faith that uh, because it's a multinational conglomerate response that the safety is probably not going to be because there's so many cooks in that kitchen, I don't yeah. think that it's going to be pushed through by one company or country without mm-hmm. sufficient uh, safety data. Well, speaking of the caution in terms of, you know, accepting data sets that have not been peer reviewed or published, um, one of the most recent updates has been the use of dexamethasone for treating those COVID patients that have more severe symptoms, more at-risk symptoms, such as those on ventilators and having airway issues. Um, what is dexamethasone? Who wants to take that? Dr. Cardi or Dr. Keller? What is dexamethasone? Uh, so dexamethasone is a corticosteroid. It has anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressant effects. And again, like you said, it's usually uh, used to treat allergies, asthma, um, breathing issues, COPD, so the idea is to try to cut down some of the inflammation that's mm-hmm. caused in the body. That famous cytokine storm. So you, you stole my words again. <laughs> so, you know, that cytokine storm is inflammation. I mean, it's, it's, it's involved in it at least. And 
um, this would make a lot of sense. You just got to be careful. We do the same type of thing with malaria where we try to shut down. So kids with malaria can have a huge inflammatory response Mm -hmm. with certain cytokines. And we try to shut that down and yet the, the, and it shut it down, but um, the death rate was still the same. Yeah. So they died from, from, the bug taken over because the immune response wasn't able to kill the, the bacteria. So, you know, you, you know, this is anecdotal evidence without a publication. Oh yeah. At this point. Yes. And, and I, we want to make that clear. Yeah. This has not been peer reviewed yet. Still in kind of the, there's still a lot of questions yeah. that have no answers in terms of the use of dexamethasone, but based well, what, on what this, did they find though? Okay. Um, we'll jump right there. So um, <laughs> probably the m- most substantial result is that it's been used in severely ill COVID-19 patients to decrease death rates by approximately a third or about 33%. And it was being administered to patients who were on ventilators or receiving oxygen. And it appeared to reverse a lot of those effects due to its anti-inflammatory properties. This was conducted in a trial or experiment that was known as the recovery trial. Uh, this study began in April, and it was a it is currently a randomized clinical trial to test the effects of dexamethasone, and they were previously testing the effects of hydrochloroquine. Um, hydroxychloroquine. Yes. What did I say? Hydrochloroquine. Oh, apologies. Geez. I think everybody. Hydroxychloroquine. Everybody will figure it out. Who yeah, I figured. To this podcast. Okay, hydroxychloroquine. Thank you for the reminder on air, Delbert. Um, so they compared twenty one hundred <laughs> patients that received. I'm used to it. Um, comparing twenty one hundred patients receiving dexamethasone to forty three hundred patients who didn't receive it. Now and that's a big number. That's, that's a big number. A big number. Right? Yeah, yes, that's a big, big number. number. Yeah, and what's key here is that only those patients who were on ventilators or receiving oxygen um, got this added benefit, right? Those patients who didn't receive ventilatory support, they didn't really demonstrate any significant benefits from the dexamethasone um, treatment. So it was a combination of dexamethasone plus ventilator. Exactly. That made a difference. Yeah. Now, again, just we want to really emphasize here, uh, extreme caution has to be exercised here only because this is right now just a press release, hasn't been peer-reviewed, hasn't gone through, as we all know, the scientific process of editing, review, putting it into a manuscript, and then, of course, peer review. Um, This is still very preliminary evidence that this treatment might be efficient in terms of helping these patients on ventilators. And let's let's, uh, remind that these are severely ill patients. Yes. These are critically... Ill patients, so the ventilator support is necessary. Yeah, right. And even if you saw an effect on the immune response, the damage has probably already been done in the lungs, and they need time to heal. Mm-hmm. But they need help with that ventilator. Yeah, uh, this isn't for people that walk in with a mild case of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So I, the other thing is to re- again, this is an anti-inflammatory to mm-hmm. stop the inflammation or help prevent the inflammation. This has nothing to do with an antiviral. Correct. Exactly. To prevent the actual virus. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm surprised they didn't even send it in for like a short report or like a brief commentary into a journal, right? I mean, they you think they would have done that? I mean, it's easy to just do a one table manuscript and, you know, one figure manuscript and send it in for something like this. I mean, you know, I read I read an interesting blog saying, is there a rush now to be that first team or first person 
to come up or discover an efficient treatment for these, you know, at risk or uh, these patients on ventilators, something that they're calling press release science, meaning, oh, put something to get, uh, yeah. together and get it out there in the public consciousness versus standard peer reviewed. But, I mean, but, but, but does that does that really matter? I mean, the public looks at it and says, oh, yeah, whatever, X, Y, Z found X, Y, Z. Right. But the rest of us in the science field are thinking, well, that's not peer reviewed. I don't. I don't trust it till I peer review it, you know what I mean? Or like I see it peer reviewed in a publication. Well, I guess I look on into the controversies over hydroxychloroquine <laughs> where, you know, that was proposed months ago. Oh, it may be beneficial, but we need to collect more data. Right. And all of a sudden you have this rush and the propaganda over. Oh, well, no, use hydroxychloroquine. Right. Yeah. I what happened say, yesterday? And yesterday the FDA revoked. Uh, emergency use authorization for the use of hydroxychloroquine as well as chloroquine for the treatment of COVID. And uh, since uh, our uh, coronavirus response team uh, went crazy with that news, uh, bought a ton of samples and doses for that. And uh, apparently right now the federal stockpile is left with 66 million doses of hydroxychloroquine that they don't know what to do with. I hope they donated for malaria effort in Africa. I was going to say, hopefully response. that would go. Yeah. They have three years to do something with it. <laughs> the shelf life is three years, Delbert. Well, there's perhaps, no rush. Perhaps some good could come out yeah. of that. Yeah. Well, let's I'm, let's I'm face this I'm too. Hoping. I mean, hindsight is 2020. Of course. Oh, yeah. And at the time we were really, we had nothing. Yeah. You know, and as, as this outbreak continues, we're going to, we'll find things that work, but, yeah. Yeah. but we were searching for anything. And so of course, I think the first thing that comes along, we're going to jump on. Yeah. Um, so far, nothing works perfect. Yeah. No, no. And I bet you uh, this dexamethasone story, there's probably more to it and mm -hmm. uh, possible gaps. More give it another couple weeks and then yeah. things are going to come out. We'll yeah. see. Don't buy de dexamethasone. Right. Yeah. We're, we're not, not, don't, not recommending don't, don't that. Don't this is simply that. an observation and a <laughs> short report from the BioBusters. That is correct. All right. So other interesting developments. Uh, and we kind of hinted at this uh, last episode. We just haven't, uh, you know, uh, looked at any of the data. So it looks like a lot of neglected diseases or uh, are getting more neglected and vaccine preventable diseases are taking a mm -hmm. back seat to COVID-19 pandemic sure. fighting efforts. And it turns out a lot of parents are afraid to take their kids to the pediatrician and get their normal vaccinations. Uh, in terms of vaccination rates, uh, the CDC has reported so, for example, in January, the number of measles containing vaccine doses administered in January roughly averaged around 2,500 or so. In April or in March, that number went down to about 1,000. So in the U.S. alone, there's a drop in about 50% of vaccination efforts. And pediatricians are raising the alarm nationwide. And it turns out this is not just a U.S. problem. Uh, a recent report, which you'll find in, a link to in the show notes, uh, by the New York Times and the WHO, there's an uptick in diphtheria in Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal. There's an uptick in cholera, although uh, in, in South Sudan, Cameroon, Mozambique, Yemen, Bangladesh. A mutated strain of poliovirus has been reported in more than 30 countries. 
And in addition to the U.S. having a problem with the measles outbreak, uh, it is also flaring around the globe. Brazil, Cambodia, Central African Republic, Iraq, Nepal, Nigeria, Uzbekistan, etc. I mean, it was already all. in Europe yeah. and England specifically. Yeah. So every every continent has measles problems. Yeah. You know, out of all that list, what what concerns me the most is the polio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we get a mutated strain that can resist vaccination, yep. all right, that's going to change. A, we're going to have to go back to the we have we have two vaccine preparations for polio mm-hmm. uh, for our listeners. And, and the one we use in this country is a uh, a killed vaccine. So you, c- you can't get polio from it, mm-hmm. um, but it's effective enough for the amount of. But we have zero polio transmission. Mm-hmm. But if if this occurs, we might have to go back to the to the live. Yeah. And the fact that it's been reported in more than 30 countries is concerning. It I mean, is. We, we, we were down to uh, barely a handful of countries. Right? We, we were on the way to eradicate polio. Yeah. 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 That, would be, that would be something. Yeah. It's just striking that as soon yeah. as that national emergency was declared in the U.S. on March 13th, you see that striking drop. I mean, that's a significant drop in terms of the number of measles containing vaccine doses. Yeah, March 9th, uh, two 2,000 doses of measles vaccines. March 16th, 1,000 doses. That is, to see it in that small period of time just says big picture. But, uh, I mean, the government did tell people, stay at home, don't go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Well, I would hope that maybe the increase once things open back up and we go back to semi-normal over the next few weeks or months, maybe the increase would go back to previous levels before the end yeah. of the year. There's catch-up schedules for uh, vaccinations for kids. So okay, that's good. Uh, I also th- think we know more now than we did in early March. And I think back then in early March and even in February, people were nervous about going out and going mm-hmm. to the pediatrician's office or the doctor's office. Still, I'd be nervous about going into an ER, yeah, right? Sure. If I'm a healthy person, but say I fell down and walking into the ER, you don't know how many COVID cases are in that emergency yeah. room right there that you're actually going to get exposed while you're there. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think people were worried about that with pediatrician's offices. I think most offices and clinics now are um, trying to schedule things as this time of day is for our healthy visitors coming in for vaccines versus this time of day or these days are kind of more for the people who are actually showing signs Mm -hmm. to try to separate that so that they're not kind of mixing and getting exposed. That's good. And, uh, you know, people are losing jobs in some of these uh, professions. A friend of mine is a dentist and uh, she's saying people stop going to the dentist and uh, she was actually let go. Right. So. Right. And, uh, you know, she joked about kind of about it, saying like, Oh, in dental school, they tell you, oh, dentistry is recession proof, right? But she said it turns out it wasn't pandemic proof, right? Yeah. And Especially for a respiratory illness, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, like absolutely. a dentist. Okay. So uh, one more thing uh, as an interesting update before we interview Dr. Carney. So a recent uh, report came out and uh, both of these reports, by the way, have been submitted to the bio archive. So the bioarchive is a pre-peer review uh, publication process, right? So uh, it's actually pretty popular these days for people to get their science out there, get some input on it uh, as it is being peer reviewed. So uh, this is interesting. So they're uh, looking to see whether there's any correlation between uh, blood types and coronavirus. So uh, a study extracted DNA sample from about 2000 COVID-19 patients and about 2,200 uh, donors with no evidence of COVID-19 and looked at 
analyzing uh, whether certain blood groups have any relationship to susceptibility to COVID-19. And uh, in both of these papers, uh, there is uh, some analysis showing a higher risk for A-positive individuals and a protective effect for blood group O in a study, one in Germany, one out of China, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Which uh, sent me into a rabbit hole on blood types well, and diseses. There, before you yeah, get go there. ahead. So you read? The, did you read these papers? Uh, I, I looked at them? their figures. Yeah, I did not. Did yeah. they? How did they identify people with no evidence of COVID nineteen? So, oh, that's a good point. We should check the methods and materials for those. But I think for for a lot of, uh, for one of them, they were tested negative. For the other, I think they just did not come in with. Needing symptoms. hospital care. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's an important point. Um, sorry for the science talks, folks, but that's it's kind of important to to make sure that your case is really a case, or oh, yeah, else, of course, you muddy the waters. Now, I mean, clearly, this this is very interesting. Oh yeah, a lot and of news to, articles picked it up, but again, I caution it's very everybody: it is only in bio archive. It has not. Don't been go changing again. your blood type. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, just as a preface, you, you just can't do it. Footnotes: You can't do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, they also researchers found this in Wuhan as well, right? Yeah, a yeah. similar conclusion with the relationship between blood yeah, type and yeah. coronavirus. Yeah. And there are other diseases that show this predisposition and this link as well, right? With certain blood types. Yeah, that I mean, I I spent a good amount of time looking this up, and I thought it was so interesting that we would leave Wish it I for the free time. For an, <laughs> but we would leave it for a new episode. Right? I, th- I think that I think that warrants one. That's yeah. I find this very interesting. I mean, let's face it; they are antigens, after all, in the surface of our blood cells. Yep, right. And for anybody who know, you know, you should all know your blood type. I think that's a very important thing oh, that course. everybody knows their own blood type. Mm-hmm. Do, uh, Dr. Carney, giving a face sure, thing. yeah, um, and and just just so you know, and for people that are oh, they have antibodies to the the A and the B types, mm-hmm. if you will, and so they're definitely antigens, and they they could definitely be associated with binding of pathogens yeah, and, and yeah. things. Yeah. There's just probably a lot we don't know about those. Yeah. So uh, for pathogens, I mean, uh, ETEC, uh, Helicobacter, Vibrio, Malaria, all apparently have association with certain blood types. We'll yeah, talk about right. that on a different episode. That would be really interesting. Yeah. Okay. But uh, just sort of a double, taste double for people. Um, Fascinating. For example, people with ABO genes, meaning that they have either A, B, or AB blood types. Correct, yeah. Uh, living in high pollution levels uh, apparently are more susceptible to heart attacks. Uh, people with ABO genes, 82% more likely to develop cognition and memory problems compared with blood type O. Oh, well, that's good for me Be- to know. Uh-huh. Yeah, me too. Well, I'm O negative, so. Well, I'm people- O negative as well. <laughs> people with type A blood have been found to have high risks of stomach cancer. So there's a vast amount of literature on this. And I thought since we, we don't have enough time to do it on this episode, but maybe we'll do it next episode. I, I, th- I think that's great. I like that. Uh, so any listeners, if you want to send in any questions you have about ABO blood type, Dr. Delbert, since he's got the, the, the time, is going to look everything up. <laughs> uh, no, we'd, we'd appreciate it. You know, Dr. Give, Keller apparently you, <laughs> thinks I should be more busy. <laughs> I'm, this, is, this is work, man. What do you think this is? <laughs> Clearly, I don't think it's work. Uh, <laughs> I love being a guest. This is fantastic. Yeah. It's like this every episode. I, I, I'm really interested in this. No, I'll be back. 
I'll do some research a vast with amount you. of literature. Yeah, I'll look some I, stuff I was surprised. Up. I just yeah, like to sit uh, back and watch the fireworks fly. I <laughs> You know, drop did a little gas. You just don't. No, no. You yet. did not buy any of that scholarship popcorn fund oh. that goes to support Lecom students. No, no. Shame. Uh, shame. Donate shame. my money in other ways. <laughs> Anybody have a bell? What's that shame? shame. Oh, from Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. All right. All right. Any other uh, final thoughts on coronavirus? It's bad. <laughs> Try not to get it, folks. This is serious business. Agreed. And if you do, make sure you go see a doctor if you're not feeling well. Absolutely. So I think we can be serious about it and say prevention is so much better than treatment. Yes. So no, definitely. Try let's try to prevent the spread. I'd rather be safe and think that I did that oh maybe I went overboard with my precautions than actually take it like lax and be relaxed about it and then end up getting it or passing it on to somebody who's more at risk. Yes. And again, you know, none of us know what our risk is mm-hmm. until we get it, right? Everybody reacts differently. You could be a healthy if you're like Fawner, you know, biological age of 21, you can be a healthy 21-year-old body and and still get a severe reaction. Thank you. Thank you. That's an actual fact. He did one of those tests that tell you what your body oh actual God. age is. 21, huh? There is such a thing? Yeah. Oh, I Based on your that. like physical fitness and oh. exercise and like blood pressure. And all I, that kind I of think stuff. it was a flawed data well. set. Sorry, uh, Dalton. But <laughs> my actual body age was older than my body. <laughs> he was 21. Well, Kayla was, Kayla's was right on what, what was it? 31. And then she asked me what mine was and I didn't want to tell her, but she dragged it out of me. So <laughs> that was a silent night in the phone. I was going to say that went over well, didn't it? <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. So fascinating. Dr. Kari, yes. uh, welcome to the BioBusters. Thank you. We're so happy to have you here. Well, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for the chance. Uh, and you, I, I think I've said this to you. You have an excellent radio voice. Oh, I will. Other because than every, you, I've never heard that before. Every time she would be on a Zoom meeting, she has that like good radio. You, you, should, you should try radio. Well, maybe that's my next career. <laughs> I, think, I think I like that. <laughs> Why stop here? <laughs> All right. So tell us a bit about you. How did you become a scientist? Um, I kind of fell into it, actually. So uh, my bachelor's degree is in biology and I had no idea what I was going to do after that. Was it just plain bio or like a specific kind of bio? No, no. Plain bio. So <laughs> plain bio. Um, and I mean that nicely. Yeah, no, no, I, I understand. But seriously, I was just a young kid who had no idea that college should prepare you for a career. Mm-hmm. I just kind of thought you went to college and I did. And I love biology. I've always loved science. Um, so after that, kind of fell into a couple jobs. One was environmental testing where I tested water to see if the chemical components that were um, being produced from companies, kind of like going into rivers and streams and so forth in central PA to test the levels there. Um, good job. Interesting job. My guess job. they were high. Um, depends on when back, you take the, the it depends on when you take that sample, but yeah. She might be um, breaching confidentiality. So here, so. Had that job for a little Just bit, realized spot. that wasn't the job for me. It wasn't a good fit. Um, after that had a job working for Kraft Foods in a cottage cheese factory oh, wow. where I was quality control. Cool. Okay. Awesome. I don't eat cottage cheese. It's the, but, it's, it's, folks, it's it. the safest the cottage cheese has ever been. <laughs> exactly. But I didn't eat it beforehand. So it's not like okay. working there changed okay. my mind. Um, it was a really, actually, it was a good job. Quality control, testing all the products coming in, such as milk, 
right? Mm. All the milk coming oh, in yeah. and, and then testing the product before it would leave to make sure it was safe. And so that was, again, a really good job. Interesting food micro, but again, not necessarily a good fit for me for mm-hmm. the rest of my life. So after that, I decided that I should probably go back to school and figure out what works for me. So I got a master's degree. Once again, general bio, but I was really, really lucky because at that master's degree, I, um, was set up as a graduate assistant with a particular professor and I helped her prep and she was a microbiologist. And so I prepped all of her labs, made all the auger, um, ran, you know, prepared all the tests, helped during the lab with the students and absolutely fell in love with it. So I, to this day, um, so her name is Dr. Penny Paget. I don't think she realizes what a huge influence she had on my life because I didn't know it at the time. I but, will find her and send her a link. OK, you, you find her. Um, but <laughs> she yeah, she made an enormous impact, especially because I think part of it that also resonated with me is that she was a female in a career teaching. She loved it. She had a family and she was literally, from my view at that point, able to do it all. So that was really attractive to me. Um, so got the master's degree after that is when I applied to PhD programs, moved across the country, got into a PhD program, and that was specialized. That was medical microbiology. And so, cause I really liked the micro and I wanted to specialize at that point. So, that's, so are you originally from uh, PA? I am. I'm originally from central PA. So oh. right around Harrisburg area, I'm from Mechanicsburg. Oh, wow. Grew up there after moving around a lot because growing up in a military family, but went to high school in Mechanicsburg. Undergrad is from Bloomsburg. And then master's degree from Shippensburg and then moved across the country to Texas for my PhD. Cool. Um, yep. So that kind of cemented it, the micro path after that. Okay. That's awesome. Um, so can you describe your research for us? Kind of like, uh, what is your research? What are the, maybe the highlights of research? What got you into that field of research and, you know, experiments that you're kind of currently in the midst of? Sure. So my research, so my PhD, um, so my PhD, I did research for six years uh, until I earned my PhD and it was all on Pseudomonas aeruginosus. So it's my favorite organism. Anybody who's had a class with me knows it's my favorite (laughs) organism. So Pseudomonas aeruginosus, it's a gram negative rod. It is an opportunistic human pathogen, so it can cause disease in humans. Um, and, um, fell in love with it, did a lot of molecular work with it, looking at virulence factors and genes and regulation and all that good stuff. Um, after I finished that, I wanted to continue with Pseudomonas. And at the time, the lab that I was in, um, was also researching back then, cause it's been a couple decades back then, um, researching the new concept of biofilms. So the idea that organisms can form biofilms and that they're protective, but then they are potentially harmful for human infections. And so the idea of looking at how to prevent biofilms or treat biofilms and how to prevent pseudomonas infections in general. So I kind of followed that up when I went to have my own lab. And so, um, That's kind of what led me to essential oils and looking at the use of essential oils or even plant extracts. The idea of how, you know, plants existing in nature and how they kind of prevent infections or survive infections Mm -hmm. and seeing if we could translate that to humans. When I came here to LECOM, fortunate enough to meet my co-PI, that's Dr. Keller, fellow microbiologist. And he, his, um, at the time, his lab was actually looking at Staphylococcus aureus. And obtaining a library of Staph aureus, which is gram positive, mm-hmm. causes human infections and obtaining a library of samples from medical student volunteers. So we started working together 
and we built quite a library of Staph aureus. And so we basically started looking at essential oils and the use on a gram positive and on a gram negative. So cool. the idea is, can we find something that will work against Pseudomonas, mm-hmm. but will also work against Staph aureus? Because we're interested in primarily wound infections. So if you think about someone who's a diabetic, they are at high risk for getting um, opens wounds, especially mm-hmm. on the bottom of their feet, yeah. unfortunately. And so they're very, very difficult to treat. And in most wound infections, whether we're talking about a diabetic wound, whether we're talking about a burn, someone with a severe third degree burn, mm-hmm. they're not just single organism infections. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be only Pseudomonas or only Staph aureus. In the real world, it's a mix. Multi-organism. Exactly. Multi-organism. So we're looking to try to find something that'll work against multiple organisms. So that's what we're doing. So we have a collaboration. We work together. Some days better than others, right? <laughs> wow, but I was, I was going to say it's like chocolate and peanut butter, but I, I guess I guess maybe I should take that back. I guess maybe it's like bitter chocolate, <laughs> <and> the chocolate, <laughs> like Reese's peanut butter. Cups. No, no, but, but which one of you two is the chocolate? <laughs> Not me. Oh, then I guess it's me. Yeah, I was going to say I like peanut butter a lot, um, so no complaints here. It, it was no, it's, it, it was a great fit and. Um, I have to say that working with Dr. Cardi has been not only just a pleasure, but productive. I, I can't think of somebody better. I mean, just look over there on the shelf at all those black. Oh, yeah. Bound student theses. theses. Right. We've we've had a plethora of students through our lab and this research has got them where they wanted to go. And that's mostly due to Nancy. So how many years worth? Uh, of we've been working together. I've been here 10 years, so we've been working together 10 years. Yeah, I mean, we started right away. So I, I, I had a master's student at the time who was cataloging those staff samples. And I was really interested in antimicrobial resistance mm-hmm. and mechanisms. And, and, and Nancy came in with the essential oils and it just, it fit. We've had so many award-winning posters mm-hmm. and we've had students go to other institutions like, uh, Marshall. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them have come here for medical school. Uh, we have one that uh, is a PhD student. So um, all of our students have been successful. And, and I think most of that's due to to Nancy's work. Well, I think it's due to both of us because, I mean, sure. we always bounce ideas off each other. Mm-hmm. So that's what's great about working as a team is like yep. we bounce ideas off each other uh, when we have to troubleshoot things with students. And we do that together Which is often. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the nature of research. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the other things that came out of this as well is so with Dr. Keller's interest in antimicrobial resistance, the way it turned out is we decided Yes, we investigate essential oils and we have a a catalog of it, over 40 essential oils that we've tried Mm -hmm. and some work better than others, of course. But Mm -hmm. the idea also is, can we use an essential oil in conjunction with an antibiotic? Mm So penicillin, phenomenal antibiotic used for decades. Unfortunately, a lot of strains of bacteria have become resistant because it was overused, shall we say. But the idea is if we could take an essential oil and penicillin, and make penicillin work again. Yeah. Phenomenal. Penicillin's on the yeah. market. It's an inexpensive drug. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. We just use it in conjunction with an oil. And so we've been actually lucky enough to find some oils and drug combinations that work again, that the drug by itself didn't work before. Uh, now, just to clarify to some of our listeners, there's there's sort of this misconception out there. People hear essential oils and they think like you're burning, uh, I don't know, patchouli and... A hocus pocus type business, right? No, we're talking about 
uh, uh, substances found in nature where you actually do extraction for substances. chemicals from these things, oils that are then used uh, in conjunction with these. Uh, so we have tried in conjunction with some of the other faculty here from LECOM to extract from whole plants. Mm -hmm. um, but some of our essential oils that we buy are commercially available Most as well. Most of them are commercially available. They're commercially yeah. available. Um, but we do, we've had mass specs run and everything to look at the components. And let me, let but me say. biological chemicals. They are. Yes. They are yes. Biological and chemicals. let me say, I'm going to caution everyone. Yes, I'm a fan of essential oils. I think they're great. We're doing it for research. Never, ever go out and buy an essential oil and just attempt to treat an infection with it. Yeah. Like that's not where we're at at this point. We are still right. doing laboratory testing. Right. There, you know, there's been such a big, I don't want to say research, a surge in essential oil research. I mean, it, it wasn't there to the point that a lot of the chemical companies that we purchase chemicals from are now offering essential oils. They didn't do that years ago when we started. Yeah, so right. yeah. clearly there's a, there's a big push to get more essential oil research out there, but yes, these are compounds that are bioactive. In fact, we've purchased some of the compounds, some of the right. compounds in those oils to mm -hmm. test themselves because they've shown some bioactive properties. And you've had positive results, obviously. We that. have, okay. and it's probably on me, but we just need to publish them. And then we'll tell you everything that we know. Oh, there you go. <laughs> We'll so, keep it confidential so, can, by can, that point. Can, can you give us a quick summary? If you hear a noise, there's a landscaping, like a landscaping, landscaping happening outside, outside yeah. the office. So uh, can you give us a quick summary of sort of past results, current results for the research or? Sure. So we have um, some oils that have worked really well. So um, cinnamon oil has been great. Cinnamon. Um, and however, we've learned that it's only certain species of cinnamon. Mm -hmm. that work well and parts of the cinnamon exactly because there's cinnamon oil essential oils that you can buy that are extracted from cinnamon leaf of the versus plant the bark. versus the bark yeah, and there's also different species of cinnamon plants that are grown in different areas of the world i did not know that yeah that so um yes so we found there are certain oils that work better even red thyme. they may all be classified as cinnamon but there are certain ones yeah. that work better than the other so red thyme oil works very well again not necessarily across the board on every organism that we've tested, but, and then there's also oregano oil that works really well. But so that red time. And we're trying to do combinations as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can we combine a couple oils? Sure, sure. And that's I think, I think that's where we're going is using oils more than using antibiotics because wound infections are polymicrobial. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to limit yourself by saying, Oh, we're going to select this antibiotic, but it won't affect that bug over there. So you're just hoping what the oil is going to do the work. Right. Um, we had some students over the summer. So red thyme oil, one of our former students, one of, one of my favorite students, Chris Haydenick, who's now a practicing physician. Um, he, he, he did a MRSA uh, project and he, mm -hmm. he was the one who pushed for this uh, buying red thyme oil. And my gosh, it's effective. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's pretty effective on most of the bugs that we tested last summer um, that are found in wound infections like Enterococcus, E. coli and, and at the time Enterobacter mm -hmm. red thyme was, it's just, it's potent. So the, different oils have different, potencies we're hopefully going to find one that we can put right. with cinnamon so guess. so we've gone we we test different oils we test different organisms to see what's going to work and About then how many if you had to ballpark it how many organisms have you used in these testing experiments oh good question 
A lot, maybe up to ten. I'd say I'd okay. say ten. So we've done I, about ten. We did three last semester. We're doing Acetobacter now, right? MRSA. We'll just say staff, right? Pseudomonas, uh, strep mutans, exactly. Staph yeah. epi. Yeah. So not necessarily all mixed together, mm-hmm. no. because that's one of the difficult things in the lab, and we've learned that you cannot necessarily put, say, staph aureus and pseudomonas together mm-hmm. in a test tube and then test an oil with it because the organisms can out-compete each other oh, yeah. because that test tube environment is not the same as what's going on on the skin. Yeah. It's not the same as what's going yeah, on in the wounds. Hard to replicate that kind of natural setting. Of exactly. The well, I think that's where we're yep. at right now is, is yep. looking at collaborations and testing, mm. you know, polymicrobial infections and delivery. We, we've had some of our work compounded, some of the... It, components of the essential oils right um and uh we we, we had great in vitro results but mm-hmm. they didn't pan out for an animal model i think we that's where we so that's we kind of stalled there mm-hmm. right um which once this covid thing goes away we can pick back up but that's where we're at i guess just based on the description um that you guys laid out I like the beauty of the experiment and the design is, I mean, tons of these essential oils, right? Tons so, of these bioactive ones that you can purchase, extract. Sure. And, you know, once you, there will be troubleshooting in any experiment, but you can go through and test against, you know, different singular strains of bacteria. It's, I mean, I think that's particularly attractive for student research. Uh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I think you found a new collaborator. <laughs> Dr. Fodder would like to you join know, us. Honestly, He's more than welcome. I'll be auto. I'll be the autoclave guy, probably. <laughs> Great. The, you know, the, the first, the first antibiotic, right? I mm. mean, it was discovered. It was made by a fungus, and and so there's got to be bioactive properties of plants and and other other fungi, other organisms, even oh, that we can get. Yeah. You know, and, and and that's a big move out there. Sharks and yeah. you know different na- things, na- but nature has all the answers. Our, we, uh, just need just, we just need to ask the right question. Yeah, my goal is is that we would have the ability to extract essential oils from what I, you want asparagus. We'll do asparagus oil right. and we can test it with our in vitro model to begin with. And mm-hmm. if it shows promise, we can move forward. That's, that's really my goal because there's, there's things that we haven't even thought about looking at right. that can have antibacterial properties. The other thing I would have to add is we're really lucky. So here at Lecom for the listeners who don't know that we not only do we have a medical school here, but we also have a pharmacy school here. Mm-hmm. So when our research was ready, we collaborated with one of the pharmacists that here yeah, Dr. is here on Dan Austin. Exactly. On faculty. So Dr. Dan Austin, and he was phenomenal because he talked to us about how do we actually apply this? Mm-hmm. How would you apply this to a human wound? Right. Because we're not just simply going to dump some oil on there. Cause mm-hmm. again, these oils are caustic. Yeah. Use them In by themselves. Amounts, yeah. Oh yeah. Whatever yeah. you need to do plastic. So again, they, they can eat through plastic. They can etch the plastic. So we never would want to attempt Maybe that, to put this. that can fix our uh, plastic pollution problem. We've got, <laughs> we go. we've got a giant oh my plastic gosh. island okay. in the Pacific. We'll we just dump, dump some essential oils on. I like there this we environmental go. link. That's a, it's a stretch, <laughs> but I like it. That's a good idea. And it'll smell good, too. So um, the other thing <laughs> is, is he, but he was instrumental in helping us figuring out delivery methods. So we figured out. We used a topical ointment, if you will. It's it did not work, and so we now need to find another vehicle and how sure. whether it's going to be a spray, whether it's going to be a irrigation solution, something. We're going to find. We're looking at how That's do we apply we're... these. But again, that was a huge benefit of working yeah. here and having that collaboration. So, uh, I mean, that's, and that's where we are right now with our current student, the test, just testing different bacteria and 
whether we can overcome multi-drug resistance. So we're still gotcha. working on that. I just want to say that Dr. Cardi has a lot of other research going on, just so you know. Um, uh, currently, we're collaborating with one of our former students on an HPV project. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Um, That's just in the beginning stages. It's just in the beginning right? stages, but it's We're it's excited about forward. that. We have a collaboration with uh, a Mill Creek resident who's graduating, uh, moving on, this uh, July, I think mm-hmm. he's going into practice, mm-hmm. um, uh, Dr. Leininger over at Mill Creek to look at phones and carrying bacteria. We do lots of educational oh. research. Right. Um, that's probably our bread and butter, honestly, anymore is the, uh, the educational PhD program cool. and uh, just different different innovative techniques we can do in the microcurriculum. That's great. And uh, lastly, we have the tick research that's still ongoing too, the molecular epidemiology that we do in the area. So Dr. Cardi's busy. So, yeah. But I think, again, the beauty of us working together is that we can tackle a lot of these things. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we just so. need to publish them. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. So just as like a wrap up question or two. Sure. Um, we've hinted at this before, but what makes research in general and especially your research so important for kind of medical school students? What makes it so important and appealing and attractive for um, med school students? So I think for medical students, uh, a lot of them um are limited with the amount of time they have that they can devote to research because they are so busy with their academics and making sure that they're perf- they perform well in classes. And that is our number one priority for them is that to do well academically so that they can get the residency of their choice. So research is um, a, a supplement to that, let's say. And so the beauty of our research is that multiple people can be involved in it and it is not something where they have to devote, you know, 40 hours a week to get a experiment done. So they can um, work together in teams for the medical students. And then not only that, but they can schedule it. And as long as they are aware of time management and scheduling it well, it's definitely doable um, every week, you know, every couple of weeks they can manage that. And it's not something where they necessarily have to put in 10 hours a day following the growth curve of bacteria, which I have done that in my PhD, right? <laughs> right? I've stayed overnight in the lab and taken samples every two hours, right? I bet, I bet you miss those yeah. days and nights, don't you? Exactly. So they don't have to do something like that. We, we structure our projects in a way that they are manageable. It's great. So what is your favorite part of research and then your least favorite part of research? Um, hmm. Least favorite part is having a paper get rejected. Uh. <laughs> I think that's everyone's least right. favorite part right. in research, right? Uh, favorite part is actually probably just doing all the thinking and the troubleshooting mm-hmm. and it never ends. Like when you get an answer and the experiment works, it just opens up a door for another question. question. Right. So the idea that is it literally, you can go on and on and on. And Mm -hmm. I don't want my research to end. I just want to keep going and getting more results. So I think that's my favorite part. But when, other journal reviewers don't agree with my results. <laughs> that's the part Review that's not number fun. two usually. Yeah, that's not <laughs> number the two is usually the one. I'd like to find out the identity of every reviewer number, <laughs> number two. two yeah. Can but, we just skip that? Do reviewer number one, reviewer number three. Exactly. Number it's but, so easy. You know, it's a learning process. when we're. I don't know. It's, that's my favorite part too. Is when we sit down with our students, and I'm, I'm thinking historically, it was in the 
the spring semester, we would sit down and and once a week we just walk. Like, what'd you do this week? And we we could walk through and and find a way forward. And wow, that was really interesting. We should do that as well, you know. Right. And it's it's hard for us to keep the student on track. But again, they've all graduated. Just look over on the right, shelf, right. Um, you know, because there's so many cool things to look at. There's so many cool things to do. Well, I like the passion, too. I mentored a student both when I was in grad school and when I was teaching at my previous institution. And when you find that student who gets just as passionate mm-hmm. and also who gets just as maybe not angry, but frustrated when something doesn't work, but then channels that frustration into troubleshooting when they figure it out. I remember when my first student at Teal figured out QPCR and how to get those curves exactly right. I thought she was going to cry because she was so happy that all of her troubleshooting and different methodology had finally worked. Negative controls were perfect. Like that sense of accomplishment, it's addictive. It's I I love it. And it's confidence boosting for the Mm -hmm. student. Mm -hmm. Sure. Right. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Cardi, present company excluded. Sure. If you could have dinner with any scientist, dead or alive. Who would it be? Okay, well, that's a really tough question. I did not. Okay, I did not expect that particular question, dead or alive, because that's a really tough one. Um, You've already excluded yourself, is what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. Present company excluded. Okay. Who's your favorite scientist? Um, Well, that's that's kind of a different scenario that who's my favorite scientist so i'm going to give a shout out so so you're saying you would not have dinner with your favorite scientist oh no but i would have dinner i would have dinner with my favorite scientist but what i'm saying is when you say dead or alive that just opens up so many things so my my favorite scientist um she is currently alive she's one of my colleagues she and i work together on our phds so her name is dr kendra rumball she actually does she's one of our collaborators she does the her lab does the animal work for us um she's phenomenal So she is at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center, and she's a professor there, and she works um, in their surgery department. She does research specifically um, focusing on wounds and quorum sensing in bacteria, which is a bacterial communication system. And the idea of um, she works directly also with their burn ICU and their burn unit. Um, So coming up with new and uh, treatments and therapeutics that can work against these wound infections. So, yeah. Okay. So, and uh, how should students get in contact with you if they want to be part of your research or what's the process there? So if they are interested in doing research with Dr. Keller and I, so they can reach out to us by email. So my email specifically is ncarty, so N-C-A-R-T-Y at lecom.edu. Um, you're welcome to email Dr. Keller as well. So that's C Keller, K-E-L-L-E-R at lecom.edu and talk to us about doing some research. Perfect. Any other questions for our host? I mean, guest. Who's your favorite collaborator? Who's <laughs> my favorite collaborator? <laughs> well, well, on the spot, it could be Dr. Fodder, because well, it sounds like yeah, he's going to... This could be I, a curveball. <laughs> if he's be... doing the autoclaving, he's my favorite exactly. one, Exactly. <laughs> he could be our favorite collaborator. I can say of my many, many meager skills, autoclaving is near the top. Fantastic. <laughs> this is, this Low is a rate of contamination magic. in my dishware. Hey, that's, awesome. that's a skill. Anything else you would like to add? No, I just want to thank you. So I appreciate it. Oh, we thank you. I was super nervous, but this was a lot of fun.
No, you look great. Well, then that means you're coming back and giving us a break from talking as much. <laughs> we'll come up with a, another subject. It'll and be we fun. we can do research updates every year. Sure. Okay. Sure. We'll do it. All right. So, and that takes us to the game segment and Dr. Keller. Absolutely. So, uh, just a quick recap of our last episode. Uh, at the end of the last century, there was a young man who presented to a hospital in New Mexico. That's important. With increased respiratory rate and difficulty breathing. And uh, he died shortly after presentation. His uh, fiance had died the day earlier at a different hospital of the same symptoms. Um, and that was learned later. Uh, after that, five more uh, individuals uh, died in that area with, with similar symptoms. And this was all on uh, an Indian reservation in uh, New Mexico. And all of these patients were young and healthy, which was interesting. And uh, they were found to have a vast amount of fluid inflammatory cells in their lungs, very similar to coronavirus. So actually. they, they mm -hmm. drowned effectively. Pretty much. And not, not only did they drown, but there was so much fluid, it put a lot of pressure on the heart. Mm -hmm. So it's called a cardiopulmonary syndrome um, by the hantavirus. I'll just throw that out there. Uh, they first thought it was the plague because the bubonic plague, the Black Death of Europe, is actually endemic. In the desert southwest in prairie dogs is a very interesting fact that I like to share. They're really uh, cute. They might be Pretty cute, dogs. but yeah, their fleas are. are deadly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the, uh, this episode's question was, what was the official name of the virus uh, and how was it acquired? And our winner is Nick Miranov, who I believe was a, an MMS dude. Is yes, he was. Yeah. Nick, thank you. In fact, I don't have anything to add. I'm just going to read what Nick wrote because it's pretty thorough. He says, uh, hey, guys, just caught up with the latest episode, and I think I know what the mystery microbe is. It sounds like orthohonavirus, which is another name for honoviruses. This is uh, a honovirus. Uh, its name is specifically Sinombre. Without the name. Yes. It's, a, it's an interesting story. Uh, typically, viruses historically have been named after geographic landmarks in the area. And the Native Americans did not want that. So they said, OK, we'll name it the Four Corners virus because that's the area of, of what Arizona, New Mexico, Utah and Colorado is the Four Corners because they meet at a corner and and the uh res the residents of that area said no we don't like you calling it that so the cdc gave up and called it sin nombre so virus without a name um which is interesting that's where we get covid19 instead of naming it after any geographical landmark in china it's just coronavirus disease in 2019 right so i think you'll be seeing more of that in the future mm -hmm. so that we don't um Stigmatized. Yeah, pretty much. So this was a uh, hantavirus pulmonary syndrome, and it is spread uh, back to what Nick writes. It is spread when the uh, aerosolized virus is shed in rat urine, feces, and saliva. In fact, it, it is um, through uh, breathing in poop, rat poop. Typically, people come into contact with hantavirus when disturbing infected rat excrement in an area where the infected rat was chilling at. I love it. Thank you, Nick. Um, addicts basements. Um, I, I heard of a couple cases after people uh, in New Mexico were sweeping out the garage because the, the rat poop got up in the air and they're breathing it in. Thanks for reading and thanks for the content. My fiance and I binged all the Corona episodes oh, wow. on our drive back home. Well, thanks, Nick. We're binge worthy now. We that are binge worthy. Is, I like that. <laughs> we are binge worthy. Well, if, if Dr. A has his way, we'll be on YouTube next. So Fact. 
fact. So great job, Nick, is what I say. I have nothing further to add. And I see that our micro course paid off. You did wonderful. So now uh, shout out to the micro course uh, in the MMS program. I mean, come on. Clearly, we at least interested in him enough to go look it up. Um, Dr. A will have your prize. Fact. Fact. Okay. Now, for this episode's Guess the Microbe. I wish we had a drum roll. In the earlier parts of the 20th century, a young soldier fighting in World War I developed a stiff neck, headache, and fever, which are the classical signs of meningitis. This was the first known human case of disease caused by a bacterium that was isolated several years earlier from the livers of infected rabbits. The bacteria was again isolated from humans during an outbreak of neonatal meningitis in Germany in the mid-20th century. Today, this pathogen is a major reason for food recalls and severe disease in immunocompromised patients. The question, uh, questions for this episode are, one, what is the name of this bacteria? Two, what is the history behind the name? In other words, who might it have been named for? And three, how is it specifically acquired? Thank you. And if you think you know the answer, please email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com with your answer. And Nick, please email me to uh, set up a uh, gift exchange here. All right. So uh, thank you, Dr. Cardi, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, yes. Thank you. That is our show for today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. Just search for The Biobusters. You can also use any podcast catcher to download the episodes. Uh, you can listen on thebiobusters.podbean.com. You can even listen on iHeartRadio. I'm Delbert Abbey Abdallah. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert. And you can find Christopher Fawner at Fawner916. And uh, Dr. Keller remains Twitterless. I am Twitterless. And Dr. Cardi, are you on Twitter? Absolutely not. <laughs> you can find her we'll on you TikTok. <laughs> no, yes. not yeah. there either. <laughs> not, not on TikTok yet. No. All right. Oh, we'll, yet. Okay. Yet. We'll remove that last part. We don't want stalkers on TikTok. <laughs> they won't find her. Are you on TikTok? <laughs> no. Huh. I was kidding. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. And thanks to Baana Mani for the music. Thank all you. All right. See you next time. Next time. Bye. Bye.